Welcome back to Hair of the Werewolf, a weekly supernatural and horror-themed podcast. I'm Chase, and I'm here with Lily. Hello! Each episode, we attempt to scare each other with research stories from around the world, and admittedly, a few that are out of this world. So take a seat, grab a drink, and join us. What's on your menu tonight, Lily? So I'm having a Chianti, which is uh, really good. I thought I recognized the, the label, and usually I try to like forget wines I didn't like. And this one, I was like, this looks good, even though it's an $8 one. But I don't know. I'm not really a fancy person when it comes to wine. So it really worked out. When we went to the store, I was like, hey, maybe today's the day you buy your first box wine. It was not today, but soon. Well, I didn't want to drink. Go, you'll, you'll get there one day. <laughs> I didn't want to drink that much wine tonight. Boxed wine is economical, and it's a cool shape. And so I hear it's good. good so, yeah. yeah, I don't know. Today, I'm drinking an NAIPA. I'm still exploring the whole world of NA beer, finding some good ones, finding some and bad ones. And for anyone ones. who doesn't know, he means non-alcoholic. I think a lot of people probably know that, but... Yeah, I got to look out for my gallbladder right now, so got to stay away from the booze except for special occasions. lack of gallbladder. Lack of gallbladder. Yeah, it's gone. We got <laughs> rid of it. Exercised it. So this is episode 75, and Woo-hoo! although we've been doing this for over a year and a half, it still feels like we just started a few months ago. It feels ago. like I still don't know what I'm doing. Exactly. We're <laughs> And probably the listeners are like, you guys don't. But anyway. <laughs> I uh, mean, compared to our first episode, okay, granted. But I'd say 75 is nothing to scoff at. If this were years and not episodes, that's, what's 75, 75? That's diamond, isn't it? Of 75 years. anniversary is diamond. Ooh, So fancy. even though this episode's not years... Let's hope this episode's a diamond. It's probably going to be more rough than diamond in the rough, but <laughs> we'll find out. Uh, you have, as always, a super big story. It's, so. it's yes, it, it is a little longer than I anticipated, as always. I always walk in, I think because I try to do stories even I'm not as familiar with, and then I later come to find out that they're actually a bigger story than I anticipated. But before I get into it, I do want to give you a little quiz. So as you all know, I have a horror-themed page-a-day calendar. and that she does. Yes, and yesterday's was a boo or false oh. little quiz. So I'm going to ask you four questions, and you say boo for true, and then false for false. All four at the same time <laughs> or one at a time? I think we'll do one at a time. Perfect. I think that's best. Question number one, ghosts only haunt the site of their death. False. That is correct. It is common, but it is false. Yes. You have to believe in ghosts in order to see one. I'm going to say false because there's a lot of people who their story starts with, I didn't believe in ghosts, and then (laughs) I saw this. Yeah. I have never seen a ghost, and I'm definitely a skeptic, but I will admit if I see a ghost, I'm pretty sure I'd become a believer. Yeah. I mean, definitely. Or I need to stop whatever I'm taking. (laughs) Non-alcoholic beer. (laughs) I don't know. There was a time when I got my gallbladder removed. I was on. I had like four prescriptions, and I was like, "Yeah, this is gonna mess me up." Right. And it wasn't fun. But anyway, okay. <laughs> Number three. Only living beings can become ghosts. Huh. Okay. That one I'm gonna have trouble with because I think if it's a ghost-like thing, but it wasn't a living being, it would be like a demon or some other spirit. Mm. I think a ghost, at least how I understand it, a ghost specifically means something that is was dead and is staying behind, whereas other spiritual things wouldn't be called a ghost, even though they may look like ghosts. Mm. So I'm going to so say So what are you going to say? Okay. So it's false. Mm. There are tales of ghost cars, trains, boats, carts, and buildings appearing. Oh, damn it. Okay. Okay. I am seeing that, and you're absolutely right, but <laughs> I guess part of me would always associate the ghostness as being related to the death of a living person, and it well, was that's, part that would of be an called, entire memory manifestation. No, I think you're thinking of spirit, because that mm. would indicate that there was some sort of, like, soul or whatever mm. okay. attached. Okay, okay. Ghost Pe- card. <laughs> Took me down. People who are isolated or frightened are more likely to have experiences with the supernatural. That's at least the popular conception. How, how can you say if that's true or false? Because we're already assuming that people are actually seeing these things. So if they are, how can you quantify or measure whether or not it's more likely or less likely? I think you're way overthinking it. I think this is just statistically and what they believe. I'd say the popular theory is that, yes, people who are isolated and lonely do. Correct. So you got three out of four. (laughs) Good job. You would not have passed a test. Just kidding. (laughs) No, that's like a 75. Yeah, that's that's good enough for public schools. Mm -hmm. 
But it, you know, that is still good enough for a degree, isn't it? C's get degrees. Yeah. Actually, I think we titled one of our episodes that way. C's get degrees. (laughs) Okay, so now let's get into the story. I have done some research, and as I was doing this, I realized it's not totally paranormal, but it's not true crime either. It's very strange. Is it criminal? It's, yes. Although that makes it sound like criminals are normal. (laughs) So the story is about June and Jennifer Gibbons. Okay. Now, June and Jennifer Gibbons are often referred to as the silent twins. Their story captivated the world and basically every psychologist because of their very unique case. With this story, I really do have to start from the beginning. There's just no other way of doing it. All right. June and Jennifer's parents, Aubrey and Gloria Gibbons, migrated to England in the 1960s from Barbados. Mr. Gibbons joined the Royal Air Force, and at first, the family did a lot of moving. The Gibbons would have several children. The first is Greta, then David, next June and Jennifer, uh, who were born in 1963, basically the only people we're going to really talk about, Okay. and Rosie, who was the youngest. From early childhood, it was discovered that the twins had a speech impediment and made it difficult for people to understand even their parents couldn't understand them. Mm. Despite this, the twins were always able to speak to each other with ease. In fact, they created their own language that only they understood. I learned that this is actually pretty common and not strange at all. In fact, about 40% of all twins create their own autonomous language. I like that. Yeah. It doesn't always have to be twins, though, because it can also be just like a pair of siblings that are fairly close in age and spend a lot of time together. A lot of times an autonomous language would stem from a lack of adult communication. So in turn, twins will often only communicate with each other and learn from each other, even if that learning is incorrect. Then they build on that over time. Usually these languages are short-lived, so that's why they build on wrong understanding of the language, which is why it sounds weird and no one can understand them. Does that make sense? And it crumbles because at some point it's just full of nothing logical. <laughs> and it's just, right. And oftentimes it does actually disappear basically right when they're going into school because now they're interacting with other kids who aren't like speaking their language so, and learning. So just quickly remind me, are they um, identical twins or are they? They are. Okay. Yes. Which is interesting because I don't know if that was actually relevant to their story. I mean, they are because I saw pictures of them. But at the you same just time, know with, it's such a common thing in all versions of anthropology that twins are just something that is loved because it, it poses new, <laughs> interesting study ideas. Yeah. I just want to know because it makes me wonder a little bit. Yeah. Okay. So like I said, they the weird language between the twins eventually fade away. But in their case, it didn't, which is weird because it's not like they did have a very neglected childhood or anything like that. Their family was normal. They had siblings that were willing to talk to them, you know, things like that. But we find out probably one of the reasons why they were feeling isolated. But before I get into that, we later find out. So I kind of go back and forth in time. So okay. I, I know this fact because once they, you know, they, they get older, they talk about this stuff. But um, at the time in their childhood, when they created this language, June and Jennifer made a pact to never speak to anyone other than each other. However, it's a weird pact. It's a very weird pact. Their little game would actually become an unbreakable curse, leaving them trapped in silence. In 1974, the family eventually settled in Haverford, West Wales, where uh, they lived within a community provided by the Royal Air Force, where they also attended school. Unfortunately, the Gibbons children did not fit in because of the color of their skin. It was said that all the children were bullied, but whenever interviewed, it seemed like June and Jennifer had the brunt of the bullying. I think it's because they were twins and they weren't really talking to anyone. Absolutely. They had their own language. Maybe the bullying actually probably more than less confirmed their silence and their isolation from everyone, which is probably one of the reasons for their behavior. Um, But because of this, they obviously became way, way more withdrawn. The bullying, in fact, got so bad that teachers allowed them to leave five minutes early after school so that (laughs) they can avoid their bullies. Yeah. I yeah. like how that's the teacher's solution, not let's just, confront the bullies no. and stop this. They're like, we'll just give them a head start. <laughs> oh, just, man. Things used to be so bad. What are you talking about? I feel like nothing's changed. So I don't know. I mean, not that I think teachers I think, are bad. at. I think things are better for that reason. But like, they there's that thing that it's like um, no tolerance or what is it called? 
if you're being bullied and you get in a fight with your bully because oh, you're sick of it. Oh, both people get in trouble. Then they both get expelled yeah. and you're like, but, but what? So I don't well, know. By better, I guess I just meant that back then bullying, even though everyone knew it was there, you just didn't talk about it. But mm. now there's open dialogue about it. There, you know, it is a discussed concept in classrooms and, and with teaching as opposed yeah. to don't stick your nose in it like it felt like it used to be. But anyway. Okay. I see what you mean. So they got a head start to get away from the bullies. They got a head start to run, basically, because <laughs> it was only five minutes. Oh, man, that's awful. So their secret language eventually became completely indiscernible, whereas before their parents were kind of able to somewhat understand some of it mm-hmm. and guess what they were saying. The twins did continue to attend school, but their struggle to fit in only caused them to withdraw even more to the point where they even refused to read and write. And whenever someone would talk to them directly, they would often go very still, expressionless, and never respond. Like, play dead. Like, (laughs) yeah, they were just (laughs) not quite as dramatic, but it kind of feels that way. It wasn't until schools, uh, the school's health administrator noticed that there was something psychologically wrong with them and that it was recommended for them to seek professional help. Okay. A few psychologists would attempt to break their silence, but no one was ever successful. The only diagnosis that they were able to come up with is that they were selective mutes because it's not that they couldn't talk, obviously. It's just that they wouldn't talk. So I, so one weird question. So this came, uh, this was happening in the 60s or they mm-hmm. were born in the 60s. So maybe they were born was, in the 60s. Maybe so. this was even happening in the 70s. I don't know how old they were. But uh, did they ever record what they sounded like? Yes. So you've heard it? I've heard a little bit. It's kind of interesting. The documentary I watched... It had recordings of, of how they behaved, a little bit of when they talked, and a little bit when they actually spoke just normal English, like at a normal pace or whatever. And it was, it felt like it was a struggle for them or like they didn't want to do it. So when you heard their language, did it sound like English gibberish or did it sound like some other language? Like, could you be like, this is another language or did you think it was just gibberish? We will get into that. Oh, okay. Cool. Yeah. No, but those are all good questions. But yes, I do answer them. Their condition persisted and the school was no longer able to help June and Jennifer because they basically completely shut down. At 14 years old, they were transferred to Eastgate Center of Special Education. By this point, they started displaying other strange behaviors. So we already know that they refused to communicate with anyone else. They would literally not acknowledge anyone and um, their faces would remain expressionless. When they would walk or did anything else, it was always in near synchronicity. Weird. Yeah. They also refused to eat or drink anything in front of their family. They'd always eat in their room. And when they were eating in public, like in school, when they had to, they ate in unison, carefully and very slowly. Sometimes in weird patterns, sometimes at the same time. Very weird. When they weren't at school, they would isolate themselves in the room. I mean, same, so did I. I was a teenager. But they definitely took it to an extreme because whenever they needed something, they would slip a note under the door <laughs> for their mom to find. Wow. Yeah. It, like I said, it, it's a very, very strange and extreme behavior. I mean, I don't know how to handle that. Yeah. And I, I don't and know. <laughs> and I'm not trying to judge the parents' abilities because I am not a parent and so far be it from me. But I definitely wonder if it was handled well. I wonder, so I think they were just like, I don't know, because they can't, the parents could hear them talk mm-hmm. through the door, and sometimes they weren't talking in their weird language. So they were like, they're just isolated. And, you know, the, I'm sure the family felt isolated, and they're like, look, we only have each other. They're just in the rooms. They're a little weird. It's fine. Uh, my, my guess at this point. This whole story is very weird. <laughs> Keep going. I'm, I want more. I want okay. More. So Kathy Arthur was an educator uh, working at Eastgate, and she was the first person to really make some progress with the girls. Every once in a while, the twins would respond to questions that were either written down, or sometimes they would use like this weird computer where they would slide a sheet and the computer would read it to them, Mm. and then they would respond back, but not ever really to a person directly. Another interesting thing that Kathy would secretly do is record June and Jennifer during their sessions. But also, she would leave the camera. They, so June and Jennifer never knew they were being recorded at this point. And she would leave the camera somewhere where they couldn't really see it. And Kathy would leave the room so they can hear uh, they can what, monitor the what their language. Yeah. yeah. 
Kathy realized that the twins would often talk to each other in their own language when no one else was around. When the video recording was slowed down, they could hear that it was in fact English. What? But it was just a weird, fast version of it. What? So it, it was very, yeah, very interesting. Like no one could understand it. Yet when you slowed it down, you could. I want to hear this. So <laughs> right? Now, despite Eastgate's efforts and progress with the twins, the, pairs con- uh, the pair continued to become more withdrawn with their family. The only person they would speak to at the time was Rosie, their younger sister, who they also shared a room with. Although when Rosie turned 11, June and Jennifer stopped talking to her as well, causing her to move out of the room. Wow. I don't know why. That, I don't know if that was ever explained. I never found an answer, I guess I should say. I mean, I know I'm only getting the story as you read it. Right. Me, but it sounds like these twins are actually kind of mean and bratty. <laughs> like these, they, Maybe I wrote it incorrectly. No, but, but like, they don't want to talk to people. They slide notes when they need things. They like isolate their younger sister so she wants to leave even though they had been isolated. I'm like. It often comes off that way. But I honestly <laughs> think they're just really disturbed. I think they're, I mean, like when they were getting bullied, you know, some of the details, you know, they, their hair would get pulled. They get hit. You know, they get spat on. I mean, basically just really awful, obviously, racial slurs. That sounds horrible. So I just, you know, I, I'm not saying, like, their method of dealing with it was correct because, obviously, a lot of people have dealt with racism throughout hu- human history, basically. But And not everyone went silent, clearly. Totally. But that's how they handled it, it sounds like. And, I mean, I guess they're young. You, yeah. You, you don't deal with things well when you're young. You really don't. In 1977, June and Jennifer were seeing therapist Anne Treharn upon the school's request. After a few sessions, Anne concluded that June actually wanted to talk, but was somehow controlled by Jennifer. This is what June said. She said, even though during the sessions, Jennifer wouldn't do anything, she could still feel a power coming out of her. Like it was just a very strong presence that she had. Anne noticed that Jennifer would communicate to June with her eyes to signal to her not to answer any questions. It was, it was a pattern that Anne, I think I said June earlier, the, the therapist had, had noticed. I wonder if the therapist contemplated the idea of maybe they just need to be separated for a long time. Yeah, I mean, that is a method. So she also said, quote, the thought entered in my mind that June was possessed by her twin, end quote. Does she mean literally possessed I don't know. or is she mean figuratively <laughs> possessed here? I just think she's she's under some, some like, okay. dominance- I mean, I guess if you really want to go paranormal, that's what I mean about, like, the okay, story's okay. very weird. I don't know. Now, June and uh, Jennifer both wrote to Kathy and their uh, therapist. So, Kathy was the administrator at Eastgate, and Anne is a therapist. On separate occasions, they would both write to them, telling them that they were ready and wanted to become individuals. But they couldn't because there was something about being around each other that didn't allow them to break away. I guess they couldn't find the right steps to break out and felt like they were stuck. The administrators decided that now was the time to separate them by sending one to a different school. Oh, hey, there you go. Yeah, there you go. The dilemma, though, was who would leave Eastgate and who would stay. So I guess their solution was to ask the twins to choose, which is kind of messed up. I would have just sent them both away to different schools. Just like no one stays, right? Well, this did... Maybe they wanted a control subject. (laughs) Oh, Oh my God, that's so messed up, but you're probably right. It's so unethically science. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man, now I feel even worse. Well, either way, this definitely stirred up really huge drama between the twins. So much so that for the first time, people could actually hear them screaming and having arguments all day long, Mm -hmm. which is something they didn't really do, especially in public. Despite their near identical behavior, June did display slightly healthier responses. So with this logic... Administrators believe that she should be the one to move to a different school because she'd be able to handle it better, or at least that's what they figured. Well, they were wrong because when they told June she was going to leave Eastgate, she completely shut down. Both June and Jennifer stopped getting out of bed, eating, dressing themselves, basically basically became completely catatonic. So this happened when they were told and then also as they were separated. So the separation still occurred. Often they would cry, their faces would barely move, but tears and mucus would continuously flow from their faces. One staff member described the, that one day it took two nurses to get June out of bed. Her body was completely still like a corpse, and all they can do was lean her against a wall. Yeah. <laughs> this is so weird. It's so weird. 
The whole point of separation was to get them out of their shell, but it proved to be the complete opposite. It was a total disaster. So they decided to reunite the twins and agreed to never separate them again, at least not with not with their help. Like they're like, let's just <laughs> put them together because at least it's not worse. Oh, well, even if it helped them in the long run, we can't prove that because it was just it was just too hard for them to handle. Up until this point, everyone just assumed that the twins clearly had an incredibly strong bond. But we would later find out, again, this is just something that we find out way later. They actually really hated each other. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say it seemed kind of like the one that had the power over it didn't like the other one. Yeah. Do you think they were fighting? Why did they get so mad that they were separate? You think that the one that got away would be like, hell yeah. I think it's they're in their own hell. It's just, I don't know. The reason why, you know, all these things in hindsight or anyone does is because by this point, uh, June and Jennifer wrote in diaries about their experience. So we basically got to see their side of the story also, but eventually. So we only saw one side. You know, they're silent. We're like, oh, they're super close. They just don't want to talk to anyone. Nope. Turns out they just cannot stand each other and also can't live without each other, too. Not trying to make light of the situation, but a lot of times you see in like movies or TV shows, there's like this married couple and they so obviously hate each other, yet for some reason they <laughs> seem married. Well, but they also seem like unable to contemplate the idea of not being together. Yeah, and you, it's just you see it in movies. Maybe it does exist, and this I, is this, this is an is, example. This is it, but like twin form. Yeah. So in their diaries, like I said, they talk about each other a lot, but they also started writing a lot of fictional stories. So mm. they like to write a lot. They would spend hours and hours recording themselves in their bedroom, performing elaborate plays that they would write for their dolls. Now, we're obviously they're speaking, as we mm-hmm. established, was probably like some super fast form of English. Is there writing in English? Their writing is in English, and it's okay. actually really good stuff. Okay, okay. Yeah. I, I, some of the passages are like pieces of their writing. Like, damn, that's, that's like really well written. Okay. They were obviously very creative. One of the things that they did write about, though, that wasn't part of their creativity or like their outlet is they tried to express that they did many times try to break out of their silence, but nothing worked. They even took a communications course together because they thought maybe they could learn or understand basic human communication interactions because they were scared that when they tried, it was going to be wrong or something. They just felt like they there was nowhere they could start. Okay. And they just didn't know how to talk normal. Or at least that's how they put it. Even they began to have pen pals from all over the world, which is just their own way of being social because they just couldn't communicate. Here's a quote from June describing what it was like some days for them. Quote, one day she'd wake up and be me. And one day I would wake up and be her. And we used to say to each other, give me back myself. If you give me back myself, I'll give you back yourself. End quote. So it was just like her way of saying we couldn't even, their their whole, like, relationship was so almost symbiotic, and they, like, they didn't even know who was who sometimes. It was just so weird. That is really weird. By the time they were 17, they started writing very elaborate novels. At the time, in their novels, they were seen, at the time, like I said, very gruesome and disturbing. But in my opinion, now they'd be, like, fine. <laughs> They're just basic young adult. So, well, somewhat. Like, so, for example, they'd often set their stories around young and attractive people living in Malibu who would commit violent crimes. And, you know, the crimes were described in detail and whatnot. And I'm like, eh, there's podcasts with true crime and people who literally did this and people are obsessed with. We're fine with it now. And to be fair, I I remember being 17 and I remember all the other people around 17. Yeah. You know, the movies we liked, if we saw mm-hmm. a movie that was particularly extreme, not necessarily gruesome, gruesome would be an example of extreme, but like over the top, for some reason, we were more interested in it. And that goes away as you get older because you don't care. Right. And I'm I'm just guessing, especially maybe for the time, but these were supposed to be like young ladies and they're writing about, sure. you know, sex and like killing someone and being seduced. And everyone and just assumes that means they're deranged. They're even more disper- yeah. disturbed. Right, right. Before I move on from that. They actually did have a real passion for their writing, obviously, and so much so that they pooled and saved every cent they had and actually published one of their books. Interesting. Yeah. Where did they make money if they had communication? I I think they just kind of got an allowance is my guess. Okay. Either way, I can't remember where I read this and I didn't write this down, but there was 
there are copies of their book out there. You can't buy it, but I think they're like in four libraries in England or something like that. I don't know. It was really weird. I, I kind of want to look it up so that <laughs> if we ever find ourselves there, I'm like, and I'm renting this. Yeah. By 18, which would be now 1984, June and Jennifer started getting bored. I mean, they they did like writing, but I don't know. It just started fizzling. It was enough for them. And they're 18 now, so they're whatever. Want to explore stuff. They end up meeting two American boys who everyone described as being wild and a very bad influence. <laughs> <laughs> the four of them would do drugs, vandalize buildings, steal, having sex. Basically, they were getting in a lot of trouble. And you think, okay, maybe they're now finally out of their shell, even though it's like the worst way to do it. Yeah, they're doing what teenagers do. Right. Nope. Whenever they would hang out with their boyfriends, and I say, I use boyfriend loosely, I don't know, they would have to get really drunk in order for them to be able to talk to them. Oh, that's weird. That's so messed up, which obviously made it a lot easier for them to get into trouble, I think, because you're wasted. And, you know, if they suggest something, you're going to do it. June and Jennifer's relationship also became very competitive and violent. There's a quote from Jennifer's diary that I think really sums it up. And she says, quote, I'm not ashamed to say that I try to kill my sister. What? Things got out of hand. I did not succeed in strangling her with the wire to the radio. I'm sure she wanted to kill me too. I have a grave feeling she did, end quote. Then Jennifer wrote, quote, we have become fatal enemies in each other's eyes. We feel the irritating, deadly rays come out of our bodies, stinging each other's skin. I say to myself, can I get rid of my own shadow? Impossible or not possible? Without my shadow, would I die? Without my shadow, would I gain life? Be free or left to die? Without my shadow, which I identify with the face of misery, deception, murder, end quote. I read a lot more passages from their diaries and some of their interviews, you know, and whatnot. That's heavy. And I got to say, a lot of it was very scary and just straight up sad. Their multiple attempts to kill each other was real. Like, I think June or I can't remember who tried to drown each other in the river. And then another time, just different, different things. And then they would kind of like forgive each other and then be like, fine, until the next time. So weird. Actual murder attempts. (laughs) It's making me wonder if. It's not just behavioral. I wonder if maybe there's a, uh, like, a chemical issue here. Like, uh, you know, sometimes well, yeah. Yeah, sometimes when you have people who are, like, psychopathic or something like that, there's actually something different about their brain. Like, maybe they are, they are like, kind of sociopaths, and then, but, yeah, they, but they're, they're silent. I guess it's that whole question, nature-nurture here. Like, yeah. what is learned behavior because of their incredibly bizarre childhood, and what is, they're just messed up. Right. <laughs> exactly. No, I, I agree. I have no idea. So yeah, like I said, they try to kill each other a ton of times. Now, I know I mentioned earlier that they said that they hated each other, which is yeah. true. But in their diaries, more often than not, I think, they said that they did try to kill each other, not just out of hatred, because they really believed if they if the other died, they would be free and they wouldn't be silent anymore. There was this like curse that they were under or like spell that they could not break away unless one died. There's no way to test that theory without it being a, you know, end-all test. Exactly. The two, oh, well, okay, blah. Strangely enough, they did decide to step away from their life of crime after discovering a sad note inside of a home that they broke into. They said that it broke their hearts, and they felt very so- sorry for the victim, for the homeowner, and after that, they said, okay, we're just going to go back home, isolate ourselves again, and just not do this anymore. But that was short-lived. They got really (laughs) antsy again, and the two were back on the streets. But this time, instead of breaking into residential homes, they decided to go and burn down a store. They doused the building with gasoline and set it on fire. Along with other spectators, Dune and Jennifer watched with satisfaction as the building was engulfed with flames. During an interview, June mentions that seeing the fire made her feel powerful and energized. She also admits that she was planning on setting the whole town on fire. It was her way of relieving her distress towards the world, and she was excited on becoming an arsonist that police would be chasing. Yeah, they need to go to prison. (laughs) Right. And separated. Well, eventually they were caught. Good. Yeah. What happened was, whenever Jennifer and June would set a building on fire, 
They would call the police telling them that there was a fire and that they were speaking with the arsonist, obviously never revealing their identity. The police would show up and they would always see the twins standing and watching in silence. (laughs) (laughs) Those kids are always at these fires. (laughs) Wait a minute. You must love seeing fires. (laughs) But at first, they actually never suspected the girls because it was a small town and they were like, oh, well, they don't talk. They couldn't have been the ones who called. Until hey, it, hey, it's always the silent <laughs> ones. I'm right? sorry. It's just the way. Well, it had to come from somewhere, and maybe this is where How it came many from. times when someone turns out to be like a crazy psycho, like, he was such a quiet, nice boy <laughs> next door. He was such a nice person. Yeah, exactly. And they were like, oh, well, it's not them. But then it kept happening, and they're like, <laughs> wait a minute. And so they went to their house, and they were arrested, and they also found the diaries, so they were able to find that, like, yes, they were writing about the arts, like, they're them burning out buildings and liking it with great detail. Yeah, so they were charged, and they were sent to Puckle Church Remand Center while they waited for sentencing. They were there for seven months, and during their stay, they basically, uh, they did share the, the cell together, so they weren't separated, but they would become so violent and begin to fight that the guards ended up having to separate them. But then when they were separated, they would become catatonic, inconsolable. It was just awful. Hey, it's a good way to keep them from fighting. Yeah, but then you had to, like, dress them and shower. Like, they would not do anything ever, not even eat. So they had to be reunited. But then the cycle would continue. They'd fight, separate, reunite. Just like before, they also refused to talk to anyone except each other. This was a very big problem, though, because while they were at this facility, they were required to speak to a psychiatrist and, a, and their attorneys. Like, you know, they had to talk to someone. One doctor had the idea of installing a phone uh, that was closer to the twins ward, like where they were being held, and that maybe they would communicate that way, which actually did work because I think he might have read their profile or whatever about like um, only speaking and writing and whatnot. So they did get the answers they needed somewhat, but they still weren't willing to to talk that much. On the day of the trial, both June and Jennifer pleaded guilty. The trial was short, and it was, in the opinion of one doctor, unjust. The judge ordered them to Broadmoor Hospital, which is infamously a high-security mental health hospital. I think they were supposed to be sentenced for at least two years or until they were deemed mentally healthy. So it could have been longer. At this rate is probably never. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I think the what the psychologist was trying to say is that they weren't going to get help there, and mm. he was very invested in their hey. case. That's always good. Which is really awesome, right? The The issue is that no one wanted to take them in. Mm-hmm. That was the problem. So, like, they they either were going to send be sent to a mental hospital or whatever or prison. Yeah, if you have a known history of being difficult to deal with, I don't know which one was would be better in that situation, a bad mental health facility or prison because they're both going to be full of rough people who treat you rough right. if it's a bad place. So. Well, it's like, do you send them to their death, essentially, or yeah. to a mental hospital? And I think they were like, well, I don't know. I don't want the family to sue. Or I don't know how they are, because here in the States, you would have been sued. <laughs> so I think, like, you know, everyone probably knew, though, let's face it, they need mental or psychology. Like, yeah, it's like more mental, not whatever. And they need help from people who, like, deep dive into the mental stuff, because this yeah. isn't... None of this is textbook. I mean, this is <laughs> it crazy is stuff. That's why everyone's so interested. They're like, what is happening here? This is not normal. This is why I know I couldn't be a psychologist because this story mortifies me. Right, and I, want, I don't want to be anywhere near these people because I'm like, <laughs> you are a kind of crazy. I I would never be able to understand it. And you scare me a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. And they scared a lot of people. That's why a lot of hospitals would not take them. They said they're too weird. They're they're scary. <laughs> no, I'm serious. Like. <laughs> Think of it's it's there's this weird thing. They were bullied in high school. Now they're being bullied <laughs> by hospitals. That's so messed up. <laughs> hey, at least it wasn't because of the color of their skin, though. <laughs> forever bullied. For, forever bullied, man. That is rough. I'm not going to lie. Okay, so they ended up in Broadmoor. And the doctors diagnosed the twins with schizophrenia and forced them to take tranquilizers and other antipsychotic drugs every uh, week. I wonder if that helped. Yeah, and although the methods were severe by many people in their belief about it, they did work to a degree. Both June and Jennifer did begin to talk again, like to people, but it was 
was through a haze and it was cloudy and it was just yeah. not. So they were talking, but was it really that coherent? I don't know. Yeah. So it's so a weird quick story time, but I think it's so relevant to this. It was interesting is yeah. uh, my favorite art teacher in college. who's amazing guy, amazing teacher. And he, he taught drawing classes and, and art history. He told this story and I, ha- I took enough classes that I heard the story twice that he had a student who was on antipsychotic medication and oh. he was a very nice student, incredibly talented artist, but he would notice that his art would get very different when he would go low dose on his medication. And so oh, he really? asked the student, he said, you know, what are your thoughts on your medication? Why do you take less or more? As he said, he said, a lot of things kind of make more sense. There's uh, things are a lot clearer when I'm on the medication, mm-hmm. but I don't feel like me mm-hmm. because the world doesn't seem right. It's clear, but it doesn't seem right. And he said that, you know, I don't feel like me when I'm on the medication. Everything's weird. It's one of those things that it seems like the medication might actually be slightly fixing or putting a Band-Aid over a problem, but it's got some really crazy side effects. Yeah. People feel weird and act weird. The best way they described it, or at least June for sure, she said that it was like a haze, but the haze blocked her shyness. So... Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're writers, they're very poetic about stuff. Absolutely. So, like, you know, the, the way she described it was like, oh, well, that makes kind of sense, but it sounds like you're also not yourself because you're just kind of babbling and not really saying anything either. Fixing while breaking at the same time. Right. So, yeah, it was a small feat, I guess, if you want to call it that. But it that took a long time to even get to that point. I in the believe. Yeah, so in the meantime, you know, things were not that great. Uh, for example, some days only one twin would eat while the other one starved. And then the next day, the other would eat while the other didn't. So and did they have communication between it? So okay, it felt so like it was planned. I think I forgot to mention. So in Broadmoor, they were actually in different cells in different wards. Oh wow! They so were they far weren't. Away. They were actually separated, which is why they had to heavily medicate themselves, or not themselves, medicate them, force them. So they wouldn't be violent. So or they crazy. wouldn't be violent. So they wouldn't be catatonic completely. So they would at least get up and do things. Uh, basically. Uh, very suggestible, if that makes sense. But they did eat together, and they did even like visit every day for a little bit or whatever, and talk so that they can somewhat keep some sort of normalcy, maybe. But yeah, so that was something that happened. Like one would literally starve all day while the other one ate, and then they would switch off things like that. This was a quote from an article I read that said, "Quote: Other times, the nurses would find them frozen in the same pose, even though they were locked in cells on opposite ends of the hospital." End quote. So sometimes like in, they would be weird poses, like their legs would be like crooked or whatever. And they would happen at the same time. And when they would switch positions again, they would happen at the same time. That would have to be one hell of a coordination or it's just weird. Like either they planned it. They're like, at this time, we're going to do it because they were able, like I said, to visit. So I don't know. I don't know. See, I think what I want to know right now, because this is a very fascinating story is, you know, like I said earlier, identical twins in general are just a very fascinating source for people who study psychology mm-hmm. and study all these different scientific fields because there's so many different things there. What I actually want to know now is I want to get a pair of identical twins that don't seem to have these functional issues. Like bring them, show them the situation and talk to them about their interpretation of this because maybe they might be able to shed light on some things where they're like, yeah, they obviously have problems, but this kind of makes sense. Whereas people who don't have those bonds or connections that a lot of identical twins yeah, because I can see how, like, what, what, what are their thoughts? You know, when, when they talk about twins, they're like, yeah, they do have their own games. They all, they do their own things. So I think maybe seeing them, they'd be like, I mean, obviously it's extreme, but we also did have packs or like, maybe yeah. they can shed some light on something. I don't know. I, I really don't know. But after two years, the twins requested that they be evaluated for their release because they believed they were now normal or like more normal. But the request was denied. Every year, June and Jennifer would appeal and, again, request for their release. But every year, they were told that there was still room for improvement. For 12 years, they were kept, yeah, at Broadmoor. Until a month before they turned 30, they were finally granted permission to be transferred to a medium security clinic located in Wales. So this would mean now closer to their family, I think, again. Mm -hmm. This would have been in 1993. A few days before they were transferred, Jennifer communicated with psychologist Marjorie Wallace. The exchange went like this. So real quick, Marjorie Marjorie Wallace was a psychologist who actually like went out out of her way to study the twins and to like, I don't want to say study like they're, 
you know, subjects are in, a, in an experiment willingly. But I meant like was they she were studying very them into directly. Them. Like she, she would go there. She talked to them. She really wanted okay, okay. to help them too. Okay, so it was you know a, a good relationship that she wanted so to build. So one of the twins sent a letter to her, or, or oh called no no her or something? so they had already had this relationship. Sorry, I didn't mention her earlier. So she's been at the hospital with Broadmoor. No, with no, them. for sure. But you said there was a communication you're about to Oh, oh, yeah, this yeah. This was one of the twins communicating to the doctor, like through a phone call or letter or something. This was days before the transfer to the other clinic. Oh, okay. That okay. Marjorie went to go visit them at Broadmoor. When they were talking, this is what, what happened. So this is Marjorie, quote, I went into the place where the visitors were allowed to have tea. And we had quite a jolly conversation to begin with. And then suddenly, in the middle of the conversation, Jennifer said... Marjorie, Marjorie, I'm going to have to die. And I sort of laughed. I sort of said, what? Don't be silly. You know, you're, you're just about to be freed from Broadmoor. Why would you have to die? You're not, you're not ill. And she said, because we've decided. At that point, I got very, very frightened because I could see that they meant it, end quote. Wow. Yeah. The day before they were supposed to be transferred, Jennifer told June, that she was not feeling well, and that she was going to die. Later that evening, while they were driving to the clinic, Jennifer laid her head on June's lap and slept with her eyes open. When they got there, Jennifer was rushed for treatment, because there was obviously something wrong, but it was too late because eventually she did pass away. Her cause of death was acute myocarditis, uh, which is an inflammation of the heart, often caused by a viral infection, sometimes bacterial. Marjorie went to go visit June a few days after Jennifer's death. So she's died and, you know, it's awful or whatever. And Marjorie wanted to see how she's doing. And to her surprise, June was talking very clearly and expressing herself about the grief without any issue. June then told her, quote, I'm free at last, liberated. And at last, Jennifer has given up her life for me, end quote. So wait, remind me, which was the one that was staring, had the power early? Jennifer, the one who died. Okay, so the, the one that the one that the story was suggesting, but I'm not saying is actually evil, but right. suggested early may have been an evil powerful presence. She's the one who passed away. Now they you know were, how bad I am with they names. were both in it. Uh, let, Absolutely. Uh, let me put let, be clear. So that was from I, I think I can't remember the, the Anne, I think it was the other therapist who mentioned that she felt that Jennifer may have had the upper hand a lot of the times, but June even was inconsolable separate. So it wasn't mm-hmm. that Jennifer always had a power, oh, sure, but sure. she might've been more interested in keeping that bond. Mm-hmm. And June felt more like she wanted to get break free, but never really could. So that, you know, she told her she's finally free. And Marjorie asked, what do you mean? And June explained that they had decided that one of them had to die in order for the other to live. Jennifer said that she wanted to die and it was June's responsibility to live for the two of them. Since Jennifer's death, June has lived a totally normal life. She lives by her parents in Wales, has friends, and is very, very open about talking about her experiences. In fact, uh, a lot of the information I got is from that documentary I mentioned. Mm. It's called Silent Twins Without My Shadow, and that was filmed in the mid-90s. I think it was maybe a year or two after Jennifer's death, and... June is interviewed like you can hear her talk now and she's very like very upfront about it you know she she almost seems not shy almost she, like it wasn't her that it, I mean I can tell it's her and she knows it's her that it happened to but because she's so liberated and like totally a different person, like a different person. yeah that that's my guess but it's very very interesting and they do show the old footage that Miss Arthur from Eastgate, the school had secretly filmed recorded them. them. Yeah, filmed them. And it, it is absolutely fascinating to watch. I'm not going to lie. Is it scary? It's got like that weird film quality where it's mm. like, <laughs> it's been in a lot of horror movies. Sure, sure. So it feels kind of scary, but it's not scary. It, you just see some girls that look kind of sad and like, but it is, I guess the term is eerie. Because when you see the eerie, I guess would have been more what I was asking. Because I can't imagine this was scary, scary. But I don't know. Since we are on a paranormal podcast, I just think there's something interesting there. Yeah, doesn't need to be said (laughs) out loud. But there's this part of me that's like, hmm, maybe like I don't know. Maybe they accidentally put a spell on themselves, and they're like, oh shit. Yeah, you know, like now we can't get out of here until one of us dies. We had like a blood bond or something. But yeah, so that is my my story. And I like I said, it's not necessarily 
paranormal and it was I would say it's true crime because there was a lot of crime going on. No, there's there a was, lot of arson. But no one died. I mean, okay, Jennifer died, but she didn't kill herself. Tech like Oh, we don't a, know. Okay, okay. I guess <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what this is. I'm it's gonna, just I'm it's gonna weird. say it's got hints of both and it was super fascinating. And now <laughs> all I want to do is go check out the YouTube video. Okay. Well, right now we are going to take a break. We are totally going to take a break. And if any of you listeners are the kind that listen to us in segments and chunks, I'm pretty sure you're also going to try to find this on YouTube just <laughs> like me. So anyway, please come back because after the break, I've got a story for Woo-hoo! you. So we'll be back in a few. Okay. So we are back and I have my wine. I had some Cheez-Its, and I think we're ready to go. <laughs> Towered by Cheez-Its, second <laughs> half. All right, so I'm actually really excited for today's story. I've been wanting to do this for quite some time. It was actually sent to me a while back by my sister, Amity. So if you're listening oh. to this, thank you so much. It's not UFOs, and it's not New Mexico either. Mm. But it is on an island, a really, really big island. <laughs> this next story comes straight out of Japan. So you and me narrowly missed a chance to Mm -hmm. go visit Japan in early 2020. Yeah. Uh, We ended up just coming straight home and then the whole COVID thing hit. So that's still affecting travel, especially, you know, on that part of the world. So it still might be a while until we get there. We'll get there one day, though. Yes, I we better one day. But I do think with that in mind, I need to start covering more Japanese supernatural stories because we need to create a strong itinerary of things we need to see while we're there. I fully expect it to be noodles, arcade games, and haunted areas every single day. Oh, yes. I mean, that that combination already is just, uh, <laughs> screw the pandemic, let's just go. <laughs> so I actually took a great class in college called Supernatural Japan, which was pretty much studying literature, plays, and movies from Japan with supernatural themes. And this was before you and me had even met. And you hadn't turned me into a horror junkie yet. (laughs) The reason I took that class had nothing to do with the horror. In fact, I just, I didn't care too much about it being horror. Is I thought it'd be a good excuse for me to continue practicing my Japanese. Because by that point, I think I was on three years of Japanese. Right. And so I wanted to keep going. Unfortunately, we didn't actually talk much in Japanese in that class. And it was all in English. So, but the funny thing is because of you turning into a horror junkie, I think the most endearing quality of that class is the horror elements, which are going to help me now. Yes. Not the language, which has (laughs) over the years gotten dusty and unused, and I'm pretty bad at it now. So who'd have thought that that class might actually be the most useful of all the Japanese-related classes I took in college? I like it. So back to the story. Today, I'm going to talk about the Sesho Seki, which translates to the Killing Stone. Oh, okay. And it's not just a creepy name. Legend has it that anyone who touches it will die. I mean, we all do. (laughs) (laughs) Is it like a horrible death? Uh, I think it's a rather soon and near immediate death. Okay, gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. So let's dig into this, shall we? The Killing Stone is a large boulder located in the volcanic mountains of Nasu in the Tochigi Prefecture in Japan which is pretty close to the center of the main island, about 120 miles or 200 kilometers north of Tokyo. Which, you know, for those New Mexicans like us, that's the distance of driving to Santa Fe and back. It's not very far. It's (laughs) pretty close. Uh... The boulder itself is massive and black. It is situated in a sulfury hot springs and surrounded by similar but smaller black stones. According to a guide at the site, the stone is 6 feet or 1.8 meters tall. And it's around 26 feet or 8 meters in circumference. Seeing pictures of it is quite interesting. I haven't seen anything that quite looks like this. Most of the Hmm. area is composed of beautiful, lush green mountains and hills. But there's this one hillside where the green abruptly stops. And the ground is ashy, slightly yellow dirt. And it is filled with these large, out-of-place black boulders. Weird. The killing stone itself stands out as not only the largest, but the most unique shaped one. It's really hard to define the shape of the rock, but I would say short but fat with a (laughs) flattish top and a kind of a round bumpy circumference. Your eye is definitely drawn to it when you look at the hillside. I can't say if it's inherently ominous, as I already knew the lore of the Killing Stone before I actually saw pictures of it, so there's a chance I have bias due to the reputation I already knew about it. True. If the bias isn't there... It's kind of a creepy looking stone. (laughs) The way the park is set up near the stone prevents people from getting too near it. 
Signs and fences block the immediate vicinity, and the pedestrian paths keep a safe distance from the stone. So why does it have this ominous reputation of bringing death to all those who touch it? Well, it turns out the lore surrounding it is quite old indeed. There seems to be multiple versions of this story, but after reading several of them, I went with the version most often referenced and the one with the actual dates that can be looked up. Oh, that makes sense. The original mythology around the Killing Stone first appeared in the written record in the 1500s, but its subject matter tells a tale set in the 12th century. So, boom, no 1800s today. Bam, bitches. Ah, Take that, that century. Who am I saying this to, myself? (laughs) (laughs) Emperor Toba was the 74th emperor of Japan, whose reign began in 1107. In typical fashion associated with historic royalty, Toba had multiple courtesans. But there was one he favored over all others. Did you say courtesans? Yeah. What would you say? I mean, I don't know. I just... I I don't know. I mean, I know what it means because you just use it in a context. Aristocratic prostitutes. (laughs) That might even seem like a really mean way to do it, but they were essentially. No, I know. I I know what it means, but like, (laughs) you know, in my head, I was like, what the hell? That word. It just threw me for a loop. It has nothing to do with what we're doing, but yes, Ah, go on. No worries. Just in case. You and me are pretty poor, so we can't use that term very often it's not something that applies to it was never going to be something i was ever going to say i'll just put it that way so toba had multiple courtesans but there was one he favored over all others and her name was tamamo no may and i will henceforth refer to her as may just because we're hearing a lot of new words and names it'll just make it easier sure she established quite the reputation being often referred to as the most beautiful and most intelligent woman around. Her most astounding talent was being able to accurately answer any and all questions posed to her, which is kind of a weird thing when you think about it. People are like, she'll answer anything you ask. Yeah. So I can't help but like imagining a situation kind of like now when we have Siri and you have a really dumb question, but you just decide to ask it. But back then there's these people in like a royal court and they're just like, (laughs) they're like, Who's drank the most sake before, like, dying? And she's like, it was exactly this many people or this many shots on this day. And I'm like. It's like cha-cha. <laughs> Do you remember cha-cha? I remember cha-cha back in the day. Because it was people answering, but it, I guess they were just Googling it. But either well, way. Well, and you got paid, but you got paid to answer with cha-cha. Because yeah. the idea was back then, before people had smartphones, you couldn't look it up online when you right. were out somewhere. So I actually had a roommate. He worked for cha-cha, but you didn't make a lot of money. Yeah. So. I think he just enjoyed it. I think it was a fun job because I, I think it was like I mean, trivia. I, I mean, it was like a way to make money. I'm not saying like, oh, it was his passion. I just think like, oh, well, I can do this. It's a cool, fun, fun trivia thing. I, I I, could imagine if I was working for Cha-Cha, my favorite thing would be if a question was asked to me and I didn't have to look because I already knew. I'm like, boom, got it, sucker. I just want to ask him, what was like one of the more common questions? You know, like, does it, should it hurt when I pee? Like stuff like that. Like I just, I assume it'd be something... I thought they were more like fun questions like how tall is this celebrity or when was the first. But it doesn't mean that they wouldn't get weird questions. Ah, that's true. I don't that's know. true. Anyway, go on. I've had wine, so I'm going to be like really <laughs> distracting. But as you can imagine, all this praise brought quite a lot of attention and scrutiny to May. Emperor Toba eventually fell severely ill. A court astrologer by the name of Abe no Yasuchika came to diagnose the emperor. Using his questionable methods, the astrologer concluded that the woman, May, was in fact the reason, and she was actually a malicious fox spirit with nine tails. The spirit had allegedly caused the declining health and was likely sent by an evil daimyo, or lord, to kill the emperor. All right. So just imagine if all this had taken place in the 1800s, the, (laughs) the century we're happy we're not in. The astrologer would have likely been a doctor, and I'm using air quotes while I say that. Yeah. And he likely would have prescribed a course of leech-inducing bloodletting and a tonic made primarily from cocaine. So, yeah, I was going to say coke, obviously. Yeah, medical advances, am I right? <laughs> so understandably, May fled in fear after this realization, either because May was indeed an evil nine-tailed fox embodied in a woman, or simply because a bunch of people thought she was yeah either way you gotta run so although one version of the story claims the emperor died all the others suggest he went on to live for quite some time after this either way two men were dispatched on a mission to kill may just for you know just for the sake of the historical record their names were 
Kazusa Nosuke and Miura Nosuke. There's not going to be a quiz. So you don't need to remember. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> they tracked down Mei to the plains of the Nasu region. It was here that they allegedly killed the fox. But as with most supernatural things, it never actually ends with death. May's spirit allegedly became the Seshoseki, the killing stone. Some stories claim the stone was formed upon May's death, while others claim the stone existed and became possessed by the spirit. Okay. But the stone allegedly releases poisonous gases and all those who touch it would die. It was at this moment that the stone's reputation as a sinister and evil object was established. A poet by the name of Matsuo Basho wrote an account of which he visited the stone. He described an alarming number of dead insects and creature, <gasps> creatures like bees surrounding the stone. Their bodies so thick that you could barely see the color of the sand on the ground. Oh my God. But the story of the stone became far more interesting many, many years later after the alleged death of May. Mm-hmm. In 1653, a Buddhist monk by the name of Geno Shinsho was walking in the area when he decided to take a rest. He is approached by a female spirit that warned him not to go near the stone. Aww. She claims that she would kill any man, beast, or bird that touched it. Oh, the okay, spirit, so it would have been her. <laughs> yeah, the spirit identified itself as that of Tamamo no Mei. Geno allegedly could see that the spirit was repentant and decided to perform an exorcism, appealing to the spirit. After the spirit promised not to haunt the stone, funeral rites were held, allowing the spirit to rest peacefully. One version of the story suggests that after the exorcism, he struck the stone, shattering it into multiple pieces, explaining all the other smaller, similar-looking stones in the area. That is not a universal idea, though. However, despite this little additional story suggesting a possible happy ending, a lot of people don't seem to accept it. Whether or not this actually happened seems to be the point of some debate, some see the exorcism as a lie or that it was ineffective and that there is still a latent spiritual force in the area and that the stone was still very dangerous. Oh, okay. Either way, people who visit the stone are still not allowed to touch it. And the tale- Is there someone guarding it? Or you mean like- There's in... fences and signs and stuff. Oh, wow. And the tale that it could kill you remains prevalent and told at the site. Over the years, the stone has become a rather popular tourist attraction- And the idea that it contains an evil spirit seems to be the main draw, which is what makes the next part of the story the most exciting. Okay. So first off, before I go to the next part, do you want to see the stone when we're there? Oh my God, yes. All right. Absolutely. 100%. And I I won't touch it. Probably because they won't let me anyway, but I won't touch it. So this is why my sister sent it to me, because there's a new chapter. On March 5th of 2022, <laughs> one day after my birthday, tourists visiting the Seshoseki were greeted with an alarming sight. The killing stone had abruptly split in half. <gasps> As you can imagine, people were terrified. Oh Stories of the released evil spirit began to make waves online and through social media. People such as myself, who had never even heard of the stone, were now privy to its colorful past. So did, I mean... No one heard anything? It just... No one saw it break. Okay, wow. Now, there were allegedly, you know, noticeable small cracks on the stone and had been for many years. So some people, if you're taking a very non-supernatural point of view, is over over the time, moisture got into it and slowly broke the stone. This is Japan. They get a lot of rain and snow. Yeah, obviously. But that doesn't change the fact that tourists came and all of a sudden the stone had cracked. That in would half. terrify me though, anyway, especially with like the story. Not a lot of stones break around, especially ones that you visit a lot. Especially one this big. Yeah, and that big. So the panic is understandable considering how difficult things have been for most people over the last couple of years. Our compounded fears of the end of the world seem almost inviting to new and terrifying stories like the Killing Stone. And although most of the media attention about the stone has been full of fear, there are some that claim that the breaking of the stone has released the fox not to harm, but perhaps help the world. Either, well, that's an interesting perspective, considering what you've already told me. I think me. some of them consider that maybe the exorcism did happen, the fox was like laid to rest, but the spirit might still have been in there, and now it was more just uh, like I a see. resting place as opposed sure. to a cell. Okay, that makes sense. Well, once again, it's different ways to look at it. But either way, officials in the area, local government officials, had priests perform a ceremony to hopefully appease any possible evil spirit contained within. 
This included using Onusa, a Shinto wand with paper streamers used for purification rituals. Wowza. So that's that's the story. I want to know some thoughts. I want to know, do you think it's just a fun folklore and it's just a cool-looking rock? Or would you actually... You can't touch it. They won't let they you. They won't let but you. Let's just I pretend in a bizarre world, they're just like, oh, yeah, we, we're fine with people touching it. Would you touch it? I think I would. You would? I don't know You're what's so wrong weird. with me. I wouldn't do okay, it. Okay, here's the thing. I think... Yes and no. So here's here's why. I when you told me about like the insects and everything like being dead around the rock, I thought maybe there are some sort of fumes or like it, it's a sulfur it's a sulfur hot spring. So there is sulfurous okay, so, gas. So and I'm also things. worried about like mold growing on That's it. That's what no most people say it's it's because there are noxious gases that come up because of the natural. So maybe thing. not for that reason. I'm like, I just don't really wanna get nauseous. <laughs> but you're not terrified of the stone killing you. I don't know. You, I if think you hold your breath. I guess if I, like, run up to it and then run away. Which is exactly what you would do. <laughs> I don't know. I kind of feel like I would. It's such a you thing. I, would I have wouldn't to, touch it. I would have to get there, vibe it. <laughs> Got to vibe the stone and then, energy, brah. And then see if I would do it. Because if the stone's like, I'm going to kill you, bitch, I'm going to be like, okay, I'm just going to be over here miles away. But if it was like, oh, it feels like a really beautiful day, everyone's happy. But you're also the kind of person that... Even though, like, Hawaiian folklore, there's the idea that if you take a rock from the island, you'll have bad luck until you return it. I don't think you believe in that either. I don't I don't know if I necessarily believe it, but out of respect, because they don't want to encourage that kind of behavior, sure. I actually wouldn't take it. I would be sitting there in the airport, like, doing everything I could, shaking out every shoe and everything in my bag just to okay. make sure there's nothing. <laughs> there was going to be 100% a rock in my shoe. I can already tell you. I always get rocks in my shoe. So I'm sorry, Hawaii. It might happen. All right. So we need to not go to Hawaii because Lily's <laughs> going to ruin our lives. Oh, great. Oh, man. I'm not going to unleash some evil on the planet. Don't worry, y'all. So do you want to see the stone when we go to Japan? I really actually, that I really do want to do. It's actually a very interesting looking thing. Maybe our, our Instagram image will have, uh, I, I want to put a picture of the stone there, but maybe sure. it'll be a big enough picture that you can kind of see the area. I think it'd be a lot of fun. Japan yeah, and is I think a beautiful our, country. So. Yeah, and I we usually do try to put the picture of what we're talking about on Insta and like everything else. And you'll also be able to see the twins because there's, I'm, I mean, it, it's from their 1960s when they were born. There's tons of pictures of them. I want and, creepy pictures for the image. Gotta, I mean. Gotta set the mood. It's it's harder to see the creepiness when they're not moving. So I don't know if that's possible. <laughs> but anyway, that's my story. The Killing Stone in Japan. That is a really good story. I really liked it. It's so, been a while since we've had like, or anything like really wild, like Japan. This was totally crazy. Like more foreign, because we, t- we tend to stick. I mean, obviously, my story literally was set in the UK. To be fair, and- one of the reasons for that is when we research stories, we get in these like Wikipedia and research tunnels where mm-hmm. we just hear about other stuff and it inspires us so once we've gone down one rabbit hole everything's branching off it so it's really hard for us to stop because we've got all these things we're interested in and jump somewhere else yeah because like i'm getting this this story that i'm talking about right now was just a youtube uh recommended video of the documentary and i was like oh what's this but it's because i've been like in the uk this whole time so i need to like branch out from the states the uk we need to go somewhere else. Well, I'm thinking I might stick around Japan and the neighboring countries for a little bit because there's a few stories that I've wanted to talk about. I think I'm going to go south. What's so, up, Mexico? So we can we can thank my sister for this little break. So thank you, Amby. <laughs> and uh, all right. So you guys don't know this, but we were in the middle of recording. All of a sudden, we started hearing voices in our house. We are recording after midnight, I think. Uh, Yeah, it's after midnight. And... It was absolutely terrifying, and so we had to leave, go out into uh, into the hallway, and it turns out, like, your computer, which you had the speakers on, just started playing a random video of like, okay, ad. Yeah, I don't know. I, wh- I think what was happening... No, actually, I don't know what's happening. I don't know why it turned on. I'm not going to lie. Well, and it was already logged out, so my guess is re- I had a Windows update last night. I bet yours did the update restart, and it opened up all your apps again, because that's what it does. And just start uh, auto playing. That makes sense. Which was completely uncool. Screw the auto update. I have a lot of <laughs> anger about that. But anyway, okay, so that was just terrifying. So I'm gonna restart my thing. <sighs> so now that my heart now is we still can just pounding. like calm down because we yeah. were literally like we're in a sweaty studio and we're just about to go out there and wrestle some burglar. But no, it's okay. Or or a ghost. A burglar who had a perfect ad voice. A burglar <laughs> ghost. <laughs>
But anyway, now that it's nice and warm and hot, I can officially say that road trip season has begun. And you and me have quite a few road trips planned for the summer. Some are only day trips, some are a couple days, some are longer than that. Mm -hmm. But every single one of these trips, we have something supernatural, paranormal, or haunted, anything in between. We already have our hotspots planned out, like our locations, definitely. Some of these day trips are only for the haunted places. Anticipate over the summer a few more on-location episodes. So the audio quality might drop, but the subject matter should be a little bit more interesting and spicy. Yeah. So that's a pretty exciting thing. But the reason I'm bringing this up is we would love for you guys to give us some suggestions if you know of places in either New Mexico, Arizona, or Southern California, because a lot of our trips are going to be in those areas. If you think there's a place we have to check out, you should let us know. And if we can make it work on our trip, we'll do it. So by all means, please let us know. That would be that would be lovely. And I just want to thank you guys, obviously, for joining us today. And if this is your first episode, welcome. And I hope you guys join us again. Remember, if you want to email us anything, like the suggestion, it's at hotwpodcast at gmail.com. You can also drop your, you know, personal, spooky, paranormal, UFO, whatever story. Sure. So that we can include it in our listener story. And as always, if you find yourself having a work week hangover or a why is the rum gone kind of hangover, (laughs) well then don't worry because the best cure for a hangover is fear.